Sanctions have been imposed on 82 individuals and 29 companies. German payment provider Wirecard went bankrupt on Russia has launched an unprecedented disinformation campaign against Billions of dollars have been found in various offshore accounts. Welcome to Integrity Insights, the Berlin Risk Podcast. Hello and welcome everyone to the very first episode of the Integrity Insights Podcast from Berlin Risk. Berlin Risk is a Germany-based corporate intelligence and compliance advisory firm. And in our brand new podcast, we will be discussing the latest developments in the fields of compliance, sanctions, political risk, cybercrime, and much more. Shady actors have uh, been able to circumvent uh, anti-corruption efforts uh, through the use of anonymous companies time and time again. Access to beneficial ownership data is really vital, basically, in identifying and stopping corruption or the flows of dirty uh, money. It was actually uh, the Panama Papers scandal that broke in 2016 uh, really shed light on the scale and the dimension of uh, the, the problem of intransparency. In today's episode, we will discuss the topic of corporate ownership transparency. This is because transparency is very much in the center of everything we do at Berlin Risk. And there have also been some very significant developments in the European Union with regards to corporate ownership information, beneficial ownership registries, and so on. My today's interview partner is none other than Jennifer Henley Giersch, a managing partner at Bell and Risk and an expert in the field with more than 20 years of experience. This will certainly be a fascinating conversation and I'm personally really looking forward to it. So let's get started. Hi, Jennifer. Thanks for being here today. Hello, Philip. Good morning. Great to be here. Thank you. Uh, so before we jump into today's topic of corporate ownership, transparency, could you maybe please tell us a little bit about your background, your uh, career path and uh, what you do at the moment? Yeah, I'm very happy to do uh, that. Yeah. Uh, so I'm a managing partner at Berlin Risk, uh, and I've been working in the investigations business for 22 years now, uh, conducting mostly in-depth uh, due diligence globally um, into potential investment targets and business partners, working both for corporations and public institutions. Uh, I'm also involved in providing training to anti-financial crime professionals and supporting various organizations in how to implement um, regulatory requirements, uh, as well as um, in building actual anti-financial crime uh, compliance programs. Um, maybe what's also interesting, in 2016, I co-founded the ACAMS Germany chapter, which is kind of part of the wider ACAMS network work. Um, and uh, ACAMS is the largest association of anti-financial crime professionals globally. It's got some over 100,000 members uh, now. Uh, and uh, But I'm also involved in working groups here in Germany uh, with, for example, the leading compliance uh, association called DECO, uh, where we develop standards for industry around uh, topics such as supply chain and human rights, uh, as well as business partner due diligence and uh, money laundering uh, topics. So really everything that we're doing uh, at Berlin Risk and uh, everything that's kind of accompanied my journey has been kind of driven by the quest for transparency. So it's uh, really great to be here talking about this topic. 
Thank you, Jennifer, for this introduction. So talking about the topic of corporate ownership information, um, I mean, I said in the beginning of this episode that the transparency is in the center of what we do. And this is because we really rely on publicly available company ownership information. And we will discuss a little later on how the availability of this information has changed uh, throughout the years in the European context. But uh, the key word here really is beneficial ownership. Uh, so maybe before we start, can we just demystify this this term? Like who exactly is a beneficial owner? How is it defined? Yeah, well, actually the regulation, the anti-financial crime regulation uh, at the EU level uh, defines it quite clearly, although there uh, is an overhaul taking place uh, at the moment. But as we stand today, a beneficial owner is a natural person who ultimately owns or controls uh, a company uh, through direct or indirect ownership of more than 25% of the shares or the voting rights or ownership interest, or, and this is important, through control via other means. And this is a bit uh, tricky and leaves a lot of uh, room for uh, interpretation. And uh, if no one is identified, so basically if you've exhausted all the possible means uh, uh, provided um, uh, and um, uh, there is no grounds for suspicion, Uh, uh, or if there is any doubt that the person identified is the beneficial owner, then the natural person who holds the position of senior managing official uh, uh, can be uh, defined as the beneficial uh, owner. And why exactly is it so important to clearly identify the, the beneficial owner? Well, the beneficial owner is the individual who benefits from Uh, the uh, um, company from the funds, the profits uh, generated by uh, the company in the first instance and also in the second instance who controls uh, uh, the uh, uh, company uh, and uh, its uh, development and activities. And uh, information on beneficial owners of companies incorporated in the member states of the European Union has been available, which has tremendously improve the work of journalists, NGOs, or even companies like ours. But then in November 2022, the European Court of Justice made access to this type of information really complicated. So can you give us some background about about this decision? Um, yeah, um, before I move into that, maybe I'll just provide a little bit of context um, also, you know, to kind of set the scene for the discussion um, and, you know, also following up on your question uh, as to why um, beneficial owners are so important. Um, well, it kind of boils down to uh, the fact that shady actors have uh, been able to circumvent uh, anti-corruption efforts uh, through the use of anonymous companies time and time again. So across every sector and sphere of public administration, from public procurement to elections uh, and integrity measures and out of reach of the authorities, criminal actors have been using anonymous companies to game the system, basically, and to launder illegal Uh, gain. So anybody who's the beneficial owner of a legal entity can very easily uh, uh, launder um, uh, illegal funds. 
Uh, now, NGOs and investigators have been raising this issue for many years now, uh, but with limited legislative effect and many setbacks, actually. Um, and it was actually uh, the Panama Papers scandal, which you probably uh, remember. I think that really kind of uh, drew everybody's attention to the topic uh, that broke in 2016, uh, really shed light on the scale and the dimension of uh, the, the problem of intransparency uh, linked to legal entities uh, as never before, really, and kind of catapulted this topic to the fore of the global agenda. Uh, now, some countries and international bodies uh, began to adopt measures to increase uh, transparency in corporate ownership uh, by establishing what we call uh, these beneficial ownership registries. Uh, and now coming back to your question, the EU was really something of a pioneer on this front. So already in 2015, uh, the fourth EU anti-money laundering directive um, actually required all member states to publish central beneficial ownership registers with accurate and uh, up-to-date information on the real owners of companies. Then in 2017, the fifth EU anti-money laundering directive really marked a turning point uh, in uh, the a legislative uh, process uh, because it enabled full access of the registries to the wider public so that as of 2018, journalists, NGOs, investigators and uh, due diligence professionals uh, like ourselves um, uh, could also find out who the beneficial owner, for example, of an Austrian trust or of a Luxembourg legal entity was uh, and this formerly had not been possible. Yeah. Um, uh, so this was uh, really groundbreaking. And Jennifer, this was a decision on the EU level that all the member states had to implement, right? That's right. That's right. So, yeah, uh, in fact, by 2019, uh, the transparency registers had be really been implemented effectively across the EU, enabling access to ownership information on companies uh, in all EU member states. Uh, the UK, Liechtenstein and Switzerland, who are not members of the EU, also implemented uh, the registers. Uh, and, um, yeah, like I say, the implementation was really recognized as a giant step towards improving transparency across the EU. Of course, uh, it was very much still work in progress. And um, even uh, uh, last year, by the implementation deadline uh, in Germany, for example, not all companies had been registered in the transparency register, but, you know, at least 50% had. So um, uh, we had a lot more uh, data to work with uh, than, than we had before. And then, uh, as I already mentioned earlier, the European Court of Justice effectively invalidated uh, access to the beneficial ownership information in the European Union. Um, what I wonder is, did this come completely out of the blue or was it something that you expected based on you know previous development or did it just surprise everyone? No including yourself. <laughs> yeah, this is a really good uh, question, Philip. And I must say, uh, it was, it did come as a, uh, a surprise in the sense that, you know, we didn't see this coming. We weren't aware uh, of uh, uh, the, these cases uh, being filed in the background. Uh, but, you know, we've seen time and time again uh, how uh, access uh, to registers helps to uncover shady dealings. Uh, you know, if we look at the work of the OCCRP and other investigative journalists. So therefore, access to beneficial ownership data is really 
vital, basically, in identifying and stopping corruption or the flows of dirty uh, uh, money. Uh, and the more people who are able to access such information, the more opportunity there is to connect those dots and uh, to uh, make um, uh, illegal activity uh, uh, public. Uh, so when the fifth EU AMLD uh, came into force in 2018 and guaranteed this full public access to uh, beneficial ownership information, uh, meaning that information on companies' real owners uh, were, were, was available and enabling investigators to uh, better navigate these complex ownership structures. There were obviously uh, groups of people who were uh, very unhappy uh, about this. Um, uh, I mean, the corrupt and the criminals uh, and um, their gatekeepers, so lawyers and corporate service providers um, uh, supporting uh, them in um, uh, hiding behind uh, anonymous uh, structures uh, um, uh, really uh, uh, were unhappy with this uh, development and they raised um, um, issues such as increased security risk like kidnapping, for example. And so what did the European Court of Justice actually decide in uh, November 2022? Well, in uh, November 2022, um, basically it all goes back to uh, one, um, a kind of a case filed uh, by a uh, Uh, a guy called Patrick uh, Hansen. Uh, but, you know, we can come to uh, the stories of that later. But basically, he and some other individuals uh, applied to have their names excluded from the Luxembourg Business Register, citing these said uh, security risks. Uh, and uh, instead of assessing the materiality of the claim and how the law in the country defined uh, uh, exceptional circumstances or maybe the right to exception, uh, the courts in Luxembourg referred the case, um, uh, which disputed the compatibility uh, of this provision for AML-CFT with the right to privacy onto uh, the EU Court of Justice. Uh, and on the 22nd of November, a date that you mentioned already, the European Court of Justice ruled that Article 1 of the Anti-Money Laundering Counter-Terrorist Financing Directive, according to which beneficial ownership data must be accepts, accessible to all members of the public, uh, as invalid. And it stated that the provision violates Article 7 and Article 8 of the EU uh, Charter of Fundamental uh, Rights. Okay, and so what... What kind of impact did this decision have on not just the individual European member states, but also uh, the you know ownership transparency landscape more more broadly? Yeah, I mean, this was um, uh, had enormous uh, implications uh, uh, across the EU uh, for the uh, UBO registries. Um, on the 23rd of ne November, so already one day after the European Court of Justice decision, the Dutch Minister of Finance uh, put the disclosure of information from the UBO register on hold straight afterwards uh, and suspended the ability uh, to access the Dutch UBO register. It was followed by Luxembourg. Luxembourg, Austria, Belgium, Malta, Ireland, uh, and Germany, uh, which announced that it shut down uh, public access to the Transparenzregister on the 30th of November. So a lot of states moved quite quickly on this. 
whereby the obliged entities, uh, those who are obliged to comply uh, with the anti-money laundering terrorist financing uh, regulations, they still had to continue uh, uh, fulfilling their legal, legal obligations to consult the UBO registry for uh, before entering into a professional uh, relationship. Um, so basically, we went back to the previous version, like you said, uh, of the fourth uh, EU AMLD that allowed access only in, a, in the case of legitimate interest. So obliged entities had a legitimate interest and could therefore access the UBO registry. But it basically made it very difficult and bureaucratic for the public and journalists to access that beneficial ownership information. And can you explain why certain countries, you know, you mentioned Germany or Malta, why they reacted so quickly to the to the ruling and others have not reacted until you know this day yeah well i think you know countries like germany they uh, have uh, very strong uh, privacy uh, laws uh, and um, you know privacy has always been uh, a really uh, important uh, in germany so that's probably one of the reasons why they did that so uh, uh, quickly Uh, but yeah, now we're waiting to see what's going to happen uh, within the context of the EU uh, anti-money laundering regulation, uh, uh, which uh, is uh, currently being negotiated um, uh, at the Council uh, and is expected uh, to uh, come into force um, at some point this year, maybe over the summer, maybe in the autumn, uh, and that will provide more uh, clarity on the way forward. Okay, I'm, I'm getting a bit confused. You just mentioned anti-money laundering regulation before we spoke about AML directive. What, what is the difference between those two? Well, um, previously uh, with the anti-money laundering directives, um, they were implemented uh, by each member state uh, of their own accord. Uh, and each member state had two years to transpose any uh, anti-money laundering terrorist financing directive. Uh, but now, in the interest of harmonization and also in the interest of having common standards across the EU, uh, the next uh, piece of uh, anti-money laundering terrorist financing regulation will be uh, a regulation uh, which will uh, be implemented uh, across the EU in a harmonized fashion. So each country will have to implement uh, exactly uh, the same uh, requirements um, uh, rather than each country uh, interpreting the directive uh, as they see fit. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, let me just ask you this one last thing before I let you go because I really wonder how do you view the future? I mean, I don't I understand that you, you, <laughs> you cannot really predict the future, but I mean, there has been such an incredible push towards transparency in, in Europe in the, in the recent years. And, and then this development has been really such a move against the grain. And I, and I wonder if you see it as a, just a speed bump on the road or, a, or a much more, you know, like a significant event with a long lasting effect. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the European uh, Commission is still very much committed uh, to ensuring transparency and to improving uh, transparency of uh, legal entities across the EU. And, you know, maybe uh, there will be in the future room uh, for certain uh, legal entities to maybe require an exemption 
uh, on uh, uh, certain uh, grounds. But I think at the same time, and this is something that's being uh, discussed at the moment uh, within the context of the new AML-CFT regulation, uh, is that um, persons with a legitimate interest, so compliance professionals uh, like ourselves, journalists or other interested parties, will be granted uh, access to the register via license. So they will be provided a license because they are identified as having a legitimate interest. And this uh, right of access will be valid for at least uh, two and a half years. Uh, and uh, uh, the member states are to extend access uh, automatically. However, according to the draft uh, uh, regulation uh, that we've seen, uh, the member states will reserve the right to revoke or suspend the license in the event of abuse. So I think it will be uh, maybe more uh, controlled and provide uh, security maybe for uh, parties that are particularly concerned or that, you know, really uh, have grounds to uh, uh, be worried about their security to be able to uh, protect uh, themselves. But I think there will still be a strong drive for uh, greater uh, transparency. I mean, we'll have to see also when the uh, regulation comes, uh, how it's implemented and uh, uh, what the accessibility will be like. But I'm sure uh, um, uh, we will move away from the situation uh, we face at the moment. And how do you think this is going to work with this license? Do you think you will just uh, get a license in, I don't know, let's say Germany and and then they'll be able to apply it in Latvia or other member states? That's a very good question, Philip. Uh, we'll, we'll have to uh, uh, keep a watch out uh, to see whether uh, the license will be valid across the EU. Um, uh, I hope so. Um, but um, at the moment, uh, we'll, we'll just have to take a wait and see approach. Sounds good, Jennifer. I will definitely watch out for the license and also make sure to invite you again on the podcast as soon as we have some other developments on the on that front on the EU level. But for today, uh, I thank you very much for joining me and providing us with your valuable insights. And yeah, I look forward to talking to you in the future. Thanks, Philip. It was great to be here.